0: Hello, I'm Paul Johnson, and once again, welcome to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. I'm really pleased to be joined by Helen Miller, who's our IFS deputy director and head of tax here at the IFS, and also our guest today, Dan Needle, a specialist in corporate tax at Clifford Chance. Please don't turn off at this point. Because we're going to be talking about something really important and actually of considerable public interest, which is how we should tax multinational companies. You'll note that very often people in the public debate will say uh, we can pay for this, that or the other by getting billions more for multinational companies. And to some extent, what we'll be talking about today is how we tax them and to what extent there is more money lying around. We currently get around 7% of our tax revenues from corporation tax. That actually makes it the fourth most important tax after income tax, national insurance and VAT. And of that revenue from corporation tax, a large part, of it, a very large part of it actually comes from just a small number of companies who are making really quite big profits. There's obviously often a lot of public concern about taxing the big multinationals, including the big tech giants, whose names you will be familiar with. And concerned that they aren't paying what they should be paying. Now, obviously, a big issue here is what they should be paying. So, for the past decade, a decade is not that long in tax law. The OECD have been working to build a cross-country consensus on how to change international tax rules so as to get something more close to what people might think of as a fair distribution of tax payments. And as we speak countries are working on implementing two new changes that would actually alter both how much they pay, that's how much the largest companies pay, and where it's paid, in other words, to which countries tax authorities. And today we're going to try the important, but not entirely straightforward task of explaining what's actually going on. I'm going to start with Helen here, just give us the sort of the most basic explanation of how it is that we tax multinationals at the moment and what problems that causes?
1: So I think it's worth saying up front, that, you know, corporation tax gets quite complicated quite quickly, but very high level. I think there's two broad things worth knowing. The first is that corporation tax, the tax on profits. So companies get some revenue, they can deduct their costs where exactly what they can deduct is determined by the government. You get a measure of profits, so it's profits that we're taxing. So we're taxing profits and not sales. And in a domestic context, so a company, it's all in one country, that's fairly straightforward. But for a multinational, meaning a company that's operating in more than one country, we have to decide not only how to define profits, but also where those profits should be taxed. I think it's worth saying up front that there's no single right answer to the question of whereabouts in the world profits should be taxed. There are different ways you could do it and different pros and cons of those different methods. But broadly, the international consensus that we have, that countries have sort of signed up for, is that we will try to tax multinationals' profits in the location where the underlying activity was created or where the value added happened. So, maybe to give you an example to try to make it a bit more concrete, if you imagine a UK company, say a Scotch whiskey producer, that sells all of their yummy Scotch whiskey in another country, say China, but it's the same company in two different countries, then Even though the revenue is all happening in China, it won't all be taxed there. Some of it is basically allocated back to the UK, so the UK government can tax some of it. And you have to work out how much should be in the UK and how much should be in China, and that's already pretty tricky. But that broad idea of allocating profits to different countries gets much, much more complicated when companies are not operating in two countries, but maybe 30 or 40, and have lots of different products and have more complicated products. And in particular, it's got harder over time because now a lot more of profit is associated not with stuff you can drop on your foot and not with tangible assets, but with intangible assets. So with brands or with intellectual properties, I think of patents. And the problem with that is that those things are much harder to value. So what is a patent worth versus the underlying good? And it's easier for companies to move them. So whereas it might be hard for a company to move its whole factory to a low tax country, it's actually quite easy to move the paper intellectual property to a low tax country. So that's just made it harder over time. Also, companies have become more digital. So more of what companies do is just happening online and is less tied to a physical presence. So trying to attach tax and profits to a country is just harder when companies themselves are less attached to countries. Basically, we have this mechanism where we try to tax profits where activity happens. It was always hard to do. It's been getting harder. And very broadly, the two problems you have is that firms have an incentive to move their real activity and their paper profits to countries to get lower tax payments. And governments have an incentive to compete to attract that activity. So I think in you know, big picture, when we see a lot of the problems that we're going to come to discuss, I think we should think of it less as companies just being naughty and more about us having a system that really isn't very well set up for taxing the kinds of companies that we're trying to tax nowadays.
0: Dan, how do you see it? Is that, I mean, that's Helen speaking from the point of view of uh, an economist. As a, as a tax lawyer, is that is that how you see the, the big picture issues? I think that's right. If we step back to when the international tax
2: norms were set out and codified about 100 years ago, the the basic question was, you have a British company and it sells something to France. Who gets to tax the profits of the company? And the essential conclusion was that in that simple case, it should be the UK that taxes it and not France. And that is not an intuitively... Obvious or inevitable conclusion. Some people would say that if you make a million pounds of profits by selling stuff to people in France, then France should get to tax that. But that's not where we've ended up in that fundamental case of stuff being sold from one country to another. It's the company's home jurisdiction that has the taxing rights. And some of the problems that we have now are a result of that fundamental decision as to who gets to tax. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the one that Helen mentioned at the end. There's a divide between stuff that happens because companies are being naughty and stuff that happens because of the way the system works. So there's no doubt that, in in particular, the 90s and the 2000s, the rise of intellectual property as a valuable thing and the rise of digitalization and the ease of conducting your business in lots of different countries created an amazing opportunity for companies that wanted to, to deliberately arrange their affairs to minimize the amount of tax. And we can step back and say... Maybe that was a bit naughty. Various changes have been made in the last 10 or 15 years, which make that increasingly hard. And so naughtiness is, I think, now a less important factor. And the fundamental factor that drives what a lot of people still think of as unfairness in the way tax works, comes back to that initial decision that we tax on the basis of where the home of a company is, not on the basis of where the sales are. As long as we continue to do that, a lot of people will look at the way tax works and say it's unfair. People will look at Apple making billions of dollars in profits selling computers into the UK. And so why isn't the UK taxing that? Well, why does the UK get to tax none of these sales? And, And I can say, well, technically, the UK shouldn't tax these sales because Apple is a US company and all of its intellectual property was developed in the US. And that's a completely satisfying answer for me as a tax technician. But for many people, that
0: is not an intellectually or intuitively satisfying answer at all. I think that fundamental difference between, I think, people's expectations that they see, in your example, Apple making a pile of money in the UK, but actually it's not a UK company. It's based in the US, it builds its things in China, it developed its intellectual property in the US. And so under corporate tax rules, as they currently work, there's not much case to tax in the UK. Can can I ask this issue? You you talked about avoidance and companies being naughty, as as you put it. And I am told by, I mean, pretty much all of the sort of tax lawyers and tax accountants that I speak to, that there's a lot less naughtiness around than there used to be. I mean, can you put any colour on that? I mean, can you persuade the listeners that there really is less naughtiness around? and Or, or indeed, can you tell us that there still is quite a lot of it? P- putting figures on this kind of stuff is really hard. The, the estimates
2: for the cost to the UK of this kind of international tax avoidance, dur- during when it was an easier thing to do, there were less anti-avoidance rules, Varied wildly. I've seen one estimate that there was a loss to UK corporation tax equal to half UK corporation tax revenues, which at the time was about 30 billion, which I, I think most people find extraordinary, a little hard to believe. But more of the estimates were in this low billion pound level. There are some estimates that suggest the UK was a net beneficiary of tax naughtiness because people would shift profits into the UK more than they shift profits out of the UK. So we don't have the time to go through. How those numbers were put together and how valid we think they are. Let, let's just say that there was a large amount of naughtiness in the old days and there still is probably a reasonable amount of naughtiness now. Why is there less? So there were some specific strategies that people would use to avoid tax. One that you could do is that you'd have a payment made from the UK, which would be deductible from the profits of a UK company. Maybe you'd be making a royalty payment or an interest payment or some kind of payment out of the UK. It would be a very large payment. And that payment would go to a US company, or maybe a tax haven subsidiary of a US company. But because of the weird and wonderful ways US tax rules work, that payment wouldn't exist from a US tax perspective. And a series of rules were introduced called anti-hybrid rules that stop that kind of thing very effectively. So that world of naughtiness has, I would say, gone. What other naughtiness is there? Another kind of naughtiness would be to load up your company with Debt, So you have a pile of interest being paid to not banks, but affiliates of you, probably in tax havens, maybe again in in the US. And those interest payments would erode the profits of the company making them. And rules were introduced to limit the amount of deduction you could get from interest. What else? There's rules to stop you making large royalty payments to people in tax havens. There's a withholding tax rule on offshore royalty payments. A whole bunch of stuff. It's a bit like that fairground game whack a mole, where a little robotic mole pops up, you hit it with a mallet, it goes down, another pops up, and for, for years the government was essentially playing a game of whack a mole with avoiding strategies. But over time, the number of moles decreased as the as the options available to tax planners reduced. I think it's fair to say that now there are not many out there. But, and this is a big but, there are still opportunities to reduce your tax as an international group, or as others would say, avoid tax by choosing the countries that that, that you're based in, by setting up holding companies in countries which have lower taxes than others. And that's where these two new initiatives I mentioned earlier come in, the policymakers are no longer satisfied with stopping avoidance strategies, and they're now looking at doing something much more ambitious, which is to li- limit the ability that international groups have to pick jurisdictions which have lower taxes to overall reduce
0: the tax of the group. Let's come on to that, the OCD thing, next. Before we do, something's always sort of interested and puzzled me. What is the role of tax havens in all of this? I mean, the Caymans and the Channel Islands and so on still have an awful lot of... One senses brass plates and yeah. um, stuff going on, and Geoffrey Cox goes over occasionally to make a lot of money in, the, in, in these places. I mean, what role do they play? The so, so
2: tax havens, I think throughout history, they've been there for three reasons. You could almost call them the good, the bad and the ugly. So what's the ugly? The ugly is criminal activity. To either evade tax or put your your, your corrupt gains from receiving bribes as a government officials, or to hide money from your husband or wife you're about to divorce. Bad legal reasons, and they're taking advantage of the fact that if you stick your money in a tax haven, it is then hard for the UK tax authorities or, or, or the US anti-sanctions authorities or prosecutors or your husband or wife to find where that money is. So that's the ugly role of tax havens. Now, over the last particular 15 years, there have been rules introduced which essentially require tax havens to open up at least to tax and other authorities worldwide. And most of the tax havens have fallen into line. So that ugly use of tax havens is now hard to do in places like the Cayman Islands and Jersey, but you may well be able to do it in somewhere that doesn't sign up to all of these international rules, somewhere like, that. let's pick on the Marshall Islands. So and if, if you want to evade tax, the IFS could maybe strongly recommend you don't go to the Cayman Islands, but you might have better luck going to somewhere which has not signed up to international agreements. So that's the ugly. i sure the IFS wouldn't get involved in such things. Course, the, <laughs> IFS can't do that. Um, the, the The second, the bad reason, is where you're doing tax avoidance and tax havens let you do that. So what would be an obvious way to do that? So I'm a UK company. I have a bunch of cash. and If I keep that in my UK bank account, I'm going to pay tax on that cash. I don't want to do that. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a subsidiary in the Cayman Islands. I'm going to throw this cash into that Cayman Islands subsidiary. It's a tax haven, so there's no tax there. So suddenly I've escaped tax on that money. Now, that's an incredibly obvious ploy. And the UK and most other countries have rules against you doing exactly that. But still, with enough tax nerds, enough time and money, particularly in the past, you could find ways to avoid tax, as in do something which isn't illegal, not criminal, but is taking advantage of loopholes or tricks in the tax code using a tax haven. That's the bad use of tax havens. And that's more the kind of thing that we're talking about today, where you have an international group which uses tax havens as a way to reduce its overall tax. So That's the bad. What's the good use of tax havens? Let's imagine that I have a pension. I do have a pension. I don't need to imagine it at all. I have a pension. My my pension fund doesn't pay tax. It's tax exempt because the government thinks that pension funds are a good thing. Now, it's clearly not tax avoidance. I have a unit trust, or I, I stick money in a unit trust. The unit trust doesn't pay tax because the government reckons unit trusts are a good thing. But also, fundamentally, there is a need for funds and things like funds because they serve a variety of important economic purposes. And if we tax those funds, then people are being taxed twice, once at the level of the fund and once when they receive the money from the fund. So generally, it is accepted that funds should not be subject to tax. And some types of fund, like unit trusts, are simply tax-exempt. But there are many other types of fund which attract investors from all over the world. And it's not really possible to have something which is tax-exempt under the rules of every country in the world because all the countries have different rules. So what one will often do is set up a fund in a tax haven, and that's how you achieve the fund not being taxed. Which is a long way of saying that avoiding... Double taxation avoiding multiple taxation is not a sin. And I and many other people would say that is a legitimate use for a tax haven.
1: I think where some of the confusion comes, it's about the definition of what counts as avoidance. I think everyone agrees with the, kind of the ugly stuff. So everyone agrees that's bad. And everyone agrees maybe there's cases where you avoid double taxation. That's OK. But I think people differ on exactly what you call kind of avoidance in the middle. So, for example, if you're actually moving a factory completely to a low tax country, most people think, OK, well, you've responded to the tax system, but you, that was perfectly legitimate. If you're doing something highly egregious and very artificial and just lots of paper transactions, a lot of people think, OK, that's not OK. And I think Dan was right. The things that governments have done, including the US, I think has been really important here in changing its tack a little bit towards the behaviour of its own multinationals abroad to clamp down the more sort of highly artificial, just numbers on spreadsheets moving around. But clearly, there's quite a big middle ground here where a company might be actually moving a piece of intellectual property to a tax haven, like moving the rights to use a patent or moving the rights to use a brand or where there is something real about it. Something actually has been transferred, but it's not like a factory because actually it was quite easy to move it's a piece of paper. And it's that large grey area between, is that OK? Is that an OK use of the rules to say, well, I responded to the tax system? Or is that actually in the camp of but that wasn't what we intended? So I think the answer to that is the system is such that they get away with it. It's not illegal. Therefore, if you don't like it, change the system. But I think that the large estimates you see around profit shifting and the large degree of disagreement about what's OK and what's not OK, I think comes in, in these boundaries where there is real stuff being changed. But because of the nature of intangible assets, it's actually you can change real stuff without actually changing anything that's really physical. It's really paper that's moving. And that's a lot of what's happening.
2: Or Here's here's another example, holding companies. So if you're a US multinational looking to expand into Europe, you're going to want a headquarters in Europe to coordinate what you're doing. So you'll set up a holding company in Europe, and then all your European businesses in 20 or however many jurisdictions will be under that holding company. Where do you put the holding company? So you could put the holding company in Italy. And then you would have a pile of tax because the Italian tax system has a particularly unfavorable treatment of holding companies. So surprise, surprise, nobody puts a holding company in Italy. Or you could put it in Ireland, and Ireland has a pretty good treatment of holding companies. Guess where holding companies end up? They end up in Ireland or Luxembourg or at least pre-Brexit, quite, quite often in the UK. Is that tax avoidance? If you've got a choice as to where your holding company is, where your headquarters is, and it, it's not just a paper choice, part of it's paper, where, where will your subsidiaries be held, but part of it's where will your European CEO be, it, is the fact that choice is influenced by tax, is that an unacceptable thing or an acceptable thing? I mean Ireland would say we're a small country we don't benefit from the economies of scale of Germany we don't have the cultural cachet of Paris we we, we don't have the cosmopolitan nature of, of London so we need something to attract multinationals as tax is the thing we've chosen It's a legitimate
0: choice Ireland would say but other people would say that Ireland are facilitating tax avoidance we could talk for a long time about the philosophy of what counts as tax avoidance and actually be fascinating to do so but let's move on to what the OECD is doing. I mean, Dan has already talked about two big proposed changes from the OECD. H- H- Helen, do you want to give us a sort of introduction to, to what those two changes are? And then I'll come on to, to, to Dan to add a little colour to that and tell us a bit more about where we've got to.
1: So the background here is that the OECD has been working for about a decade, as you said up front, to try to get lots of different countries to agree to change their rules in ways that make it harder for companies to shift profits, and in particular, harder to shift profits to low tax countries in cases where there's not much real economic activity going on. And Dan mentioned earlier that there's already been some changes in the last decade where countries have tightened up rules to make some of these things more difficult. But last year, most countries agreed, at least in principle, to implement two new rules, which the OECD happened to call pillars. So these are the two big things that are happening right now, which we probably do one at a time because they're kind of complicated. So the first one is effectively going to try to reallocate some profits. So for most companies, they're going to stand under the current rules and nothing will change. But for the very largest global companies, and you're thinking here about a handful of you know, fewer than 100 companies worldwide, again, most of their profits will actually stay under the current system, but a slice of their profits will be taxed differently. So rather than be allocated as they currently are, they'll be reallocated towards the countries in basically in which sales are happening. So as Dan said earlier, a lot of people have a problem with the idea that, you know, profits are taxed where the activity happens, This is saying we'll take the biggest companies, take a slice of their profits and reallocate those profits towards the countries where sales are happening. And you can think broadly the underlying idea here is that these market countries, so countries where sales are happening, think they're not getting their fair share at the moment, that profits are being stripped away from them towards other low-tax countries and they want to find ways to get the profits back into their countries so they can tax it. So changing, not necessarily how much is taxed, but who gets to tax it. So that's that's the idea. To give you a sense of scale here, I think the OECD thinks that 125 billion US dollars will be reallocated, roughly. Is the is is the ballpark estimate as a result of these pillar one changes? And that is a big number, but it's actually I think it gets kind of a small number once you start thinking that there are lots of countries here who want a slice of that profit. So I think the big picture is you know for some companies this will shift where some of their profits. Are tax, but this is not a wholesale change in the regime to say let's move towards taxing profits where markets are. This is a keep the current system and at the margin for a small handful of companies, let's tweak the allocation in the sort of the grander scheme of things. I think it's actually it's large in the sense it's a big change conceptually to what we currently do, but in terms of like pounds that are changing countries, I think it's actually relatively small.
0: That's 125 billion of profits, not of tax. Is that right?
1: Exactly. So this is profits. This is basically saying: take the biggest companies, take some of their profits, and you're still going to tax them. But basically, rather than tax them where they're currently being taxed, we're going to change where those profits are taxed. And now, market countries, so countries in which sales happens, get a bigger slice of the tax pie. So, look, governments aren't going to turn down that revenue. They'll be—I'm they'll, sure they'll be glad of it. But you should be thinking of, for any given country, relatively small changes in how much money they're actually going to raise from these big tech companies. So, this is not a situation where suddenly the UK is going to be raking in many billions from you know, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and all the tech giants.
0: Just to right. give people a sense, $125 billion of profits presumably translates into no more than $25 billion of tax. $25 billion of tax across all the countries in the world is diddly squat.
1: Yes, basically. And I say, I think my, my, my take on this is, I mean, people differ on this. Some people get excited about the revenue. My personal take on this is that to the extent this is exciting, it's exciting because it marks government's willingness to think about a different system and a different type of allocation and maybe it heralds a different in the future i'm skeptical about that i worry we'll just get stuck in this new unhappy much more complex two tier system but i think you know it, it's the it's the direction of change i think rather than the actual number of dollars or whatever that are going to change hands here
2: helen's right it's simultaneously revolutionary and very small So a third thought to add to those two is it's not going to happen. All right, Gil, tell us why it's not going to happen. So the reason it's not going to happen is countries are not free to go ahead and tax the profits of foreign companies because almost every country in the world has agreed a series of double tax treaties with other countries, which sets out the circumstances under which country A can tax companies from country B. And those treaties say very broadly that you tax them in accordance with the status quo that we discussed at the start of this discussion. If you want to change that, you need to amend the tax treaties. Now, that requires, obviously, all these countries to agree. What's the country most affected by this Pillar 1 proposal? Answer the US, because all of these multinationals everyone wants to tax are US companies. Well, almost all of them. What's the chance that the U.S. Senate and House representatives agree to tax U.S. companies more. Answer, very slim. Add to which, to amend treaties, you need a two-thirds majority in the U.S. Senate. So I'm not sure I've met a single U.S. tax policymaker or tax nerd of any description who thinks this is going to fly in the U.S. So is the OECD just wasting their time for the last decade? That would be extremely harsh. The initial view was that this was a deal. That other countries will get to tax U.S. companies more under this Pillar One, and the U.S. will get to tax lots of companies more under Pillar Two, which we'll probably probably discuss in a moment. But this deal seems to have slightly broken down.
1: Yeah, so let's do Pillar Two and then we can do the politics. So Pillar Two basically is a minimum tax. So it's going to say again for the largest multinationals, not every company, but for the large multinationals take every country in which they operate and make sure they pay at least 15% of their profits in tax in that country. So big picture, the idea is to prevent or at least slow down tax competition, put a floor on tax rates, we can't keep competing down to zero. But it's not as simple as just saying, has every country got a 15% headline tax rate? Because we're not asking whether they've paid 15% of profits as defined by that country's tax regime. Effectively, it's a different definition of profits and the rules will be assessing whether companies have paid 15% of that definition, that kind of matters because effectively they'll be allowing a lower rate to be charged on some real activities, so on real factories or investments, and there'll be lots of debates about can governments keep competing over that stuff. But broad idea, minimum tax rate, and if companies aren't paying the 15%, there's going to be a top-up tax that brings up to that level, sort of level the playing field. And And here's where the politics comes in that I think Dan was alluding to. So very broad brush history here. Historically, the US has actually been quite happy to do things that say it's multinationals when they, they operate abroad it kind of helps them to avoid the tax they might pay on those foreign profits and kind of says though well, make it easy for you to just not really worry about paying foreign taxes and there's been a bit of a shift in that over time and more recently I think under the Joe Biden presidency they want to raise their corporation tax rate but they don't want U.S. companies to just suddenly all go offshore and move their investments offshore and avoid U.S. taxes so it's one thing for U.S. multinationals to avoid. Foreign taxes. It's another thing to start avoiding US taxes. So I think the deal here, I think Dan was alluding to, was basically, you know, the US will get everyone under the OECD to agree to a minimum tax that stops some tax competition and provides some backstop for the US increasing its rate. And as a quid pro quo, they'll allow some of their multinationals, tech giants, to be taxed a bit more offshore. The question is whether that deal is broken down and whether now the US thinks actually maybe it'll be able to pop its rate without giving away this this Pillar 1 allocation. So I think that's a long winded way of saying the US is really quite an important player here, both because it sets out how these big multinationals are taxed at the moment and and how they're operating. And obviously, whether it ratifies a deal has a big effect on whether other governments are going to want to do it, too.
2: And Pillar 2 doesn't need countries to agree to it because it has a sneaky way of Getting companies anyway. So, a good example. So, the basic idea of Pillar Two is that if you're a UK headquartered multinational, you look at what your profit should be in each of the countries in which you operate and what your tax on that should be under these Pillar Two rules that Helen mentioned. And if it's less than 15%, then all of that gets topped up as extra tax in the UK, in the headquarters jurisdiction. Let's say the UK decided, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to make myself more attractive. And I'm going to compete by not adopting this rule. So then there's no top-up tax in the headquarters in the UK. But all of the countries where the company has subsidiaries get to apply their own tax to kind of grab that top-up tax at the subsidiary level. So you don't need every country in the world to agree to pillar two. For this minimum tax to work. You just need to get enough to agree. And there probably aren't enough to agree, because for a start, it looks pretty certain the EU is going to sign up to this. Okay. And we've already seen
0: Ireland say it's going to raise its tax, for example.
2: Yeah. And the UK, I shouldn't
0: have used the UK as an example
2: of not doing it, because it's pretty clear the UK is going to do this. And the UK has been one of the countries in the driving seat behind it. So why is this deal with the US breaking down then? So partly it's the politics, partly it's the politics that as probably all of you listeners are keenly aware, the partisanship in the US is so toxic, there's pretty much nothing the Biden administration could propose which is going to get through Congress. No more this and nothing else. The second reason is that the basic conception of Pillar 2 is that it's a win for the headquarters jurisdictions because they get to charge this top-up tax. But in the last few months, it's been clear that actually lots of the subsidiary jurisdictions will charge their own mini top-up taxes, leaving nothing left for the headquarters. So instead of, say, Google in the US having a Pillar 2 tax to the extent it's not getting 15% tax on all of its little subsidiaries, that top-up tax will be charged on all of its little worldwide subsidiaries by lots of different countries around the world, leaving little or nothing for the US to tax.
1: What's happening here really is that governments are doing what's in their self-interest, which is completely understandable. So all the time that governments think that these changing rules will let them raise more revenues, they're happy. So if they think the minimum tax lets them raise more, either because they're a, they're a low-tax country and they're better to get more from multinationals, so some developing countries will like it because they think they can raise their standards, or if they think they'll get more from their headquarter companies, that's great. Once a country thinks they won't get very much more, for example, because it will be taxed somewhere else. The incentive to join this goes away. Countries aren't joining this to be sort of noble in some broader sense. They're thinking about their bottom lines. And if you're going to do a big change and actually get not much more revenue, I think that's where the consensus for these things starts breaking down.
2: In a way, there's been a big shift. The the first wave of international tax avoidance coordination in the early 2010s, that was about companies are avoiding tax. Let's make sure they pay more tax. Now the debate is more, OK, we think the tax should be paid here rather than there. And that's a zero-sum debate between all the countries in the world.
0: So where are we going to end up, Dan?
2: We're probably going to end up, I think, with Pillar 2 adopted, Pillar 1 not adopted, Pillar 2 being the subject of different and somewhat inconsistent implementation in the US, in the EU, in the UK, and everywhere else, meaning something of a mess. And whilst that may be a better result in terms of fairness, Than the status quo, it still won't fix the fundamental problem, which is that most people, I think, would say that it's fairer to tax a company based upon where it sells stuff rather than the vagaries of where it happens to be established and a rather notional arm's length computation of world tiers and intellectual property and everything else. So you're not solving that fundamental break between the way the tax system works and the way that most people's intuition would, I think, say that it should work.
0: And I think from what you're saying, this will make no difference to the amount that we in the UK raise from the Googles of this world.
2: Uh, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll make more, more tax. Helen, what do you think? Not, not much more, but a bit more?
1: Yeah, I think a bit more. I mean, obviously, it's also a bit complicated because currently the UK is doing other things like digital services taxes and things that are trying to claw some money back and they'll, they'll change. So, you know, I don't think we'll lose out. I don't think this is going to be bad for the UK. But I think I mean, my concern here is that it's going to add a a lot more complexity to the system. And I suspect in a couple of years' time, we'll still be sitting having headlines that say, Company X got big sales here, but small profits here. As Dan said, people don't like that. So in that sense, you know, although I think the OECD absolutely deserves credit for just the huge amount of work that's going on behind the scenes, and people have you know spent their careers trying to sort this out, I think we've still got a system where people aren't going to be happy with the allocation we've got. It's not going to change enough to make that big a difference. And I think it's not even clear to me that this is the first step towards something. It's one thing to say, here's a new destination we want to get to. We can't get there overnight. Let's make progress towards it. The problem I have with these proposals is that it's kind of saying, look, we've got this current system. Let's take that as given and let's put some plasters on the side of it to make it maybe work differently a little bit around the edges. That's not a movement towards a new system. That's a a stuck with a status quo approach, I think. And I I think Dan and I are probably agreeing here that, I mean, I think the current system is broken. And I don't think it's fit for purpose. When we have multinationals that are genuinely multinational, they genuinely operate across the world, and lots of things are intangible and digital, it makes no sense to me to be trying to divvy things up on physical locations of underlying activities that are themselves mobile. The only way to fix that is to reimagine a system and say, let's make a system of taxing profits that's not open to these kinds of problems. And I think actually taxing where consumers are is preferable, not because it's inherently fair, I think you can argue both ways, but more practically, because consumers don't move. It's actually, if you want to sell to the UK, you've got to sell to people who live in the UK. People who live in the UK live in the UK. They don't move borders for corporation tax purposes. So I think a more practical, long-run solution would be to say, let's give up trying to do the current allocation and set we can't really do it, and actually just try to allocate profits to countries according to where immobile consumers are.
0: Dan, you've probably heard that from economists before. I mean, as a as a lawyer, is that will that fly? I think
2: a lot of people thought it's a complete pipe dream that any major country is going to make so big a change. But in 2016, it almost happened in the US. The US tax reform got really quite close to adopting a destination-based tax system of the kind Helen describes, where you tax on the basis of where your ultimate consumers are, not on the basis of other stuff that can be easily faked or or which is just the product of of happenstance. So it almost happened in the US. The US in the end didn't go that way. Maybe in the future it might. Maybe the UK post-Brexit could take the opportunity to do something really radical and try and reshape the entire worldwide debate about where tax is going. And it really would just take one large economy to take this step. And
0: that could give a big push to everyone else to seriously consider it too. Is there an issue there for lower and middle income countries? Would, if we move to that kind of tax system, given that the sort of rich consumers are all in the West, would they, would they be big losers out of that? That has been studied. And provided that you maintain
2: something like the current system for the taxation of oil, of gas, of, of mined commodities, provided that you don't change that, the overall move should either be broadly neutral or even positive for most of the developing world. It would also, and this is a significant factor, be easier for them to operate, which for a developing world tax authority with limited
0: resources is quite a big deal. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Helen. That has just been extraordinarily illuminating for me and I hope for everyone else. I mean, whoever said that tax was anything other than extremely interesting and exciting and all this stuff really really matters. Though I have to say, I'm glad I'm not one of the hordes of people who has devoted my life to trying to sort out these OECD tax treaties and um, to have Dan and Helen sit here and say, well, you may have devoted thousands of person years to this, but they ain't going to get you anywhere. <laughs> this really does tell you, I think, this discussion of international corporate tax First, how beholden we are to history. We are still stuck with a regime that was put together a century ago in a world where nobody imagined the internet or anything remotely like it, or the degree of cross border profit shifting that we have at the moment. Secondly, just how difficult it is to make changes which require international agreement. And that's not just between one or two countries, but between dozens of countries if not more than 100 across the world i think third in this case how important the united states is and it i think perhaps even even the focus that we've had on it is perhaps not even enough to give a sense of how central us policy is in all of this and indeed to some extent how it's created some of the problems that we've been thinking about over this episode and then finally i suppose how inadequate the public debate is about this in the UK, thanks to Dan and to Helen, we have tried to simplify this about as much as it is possible to simplify it for this kind of discussion. But it is clearly many, many times more complex than anything you see reported in the newspapers or on the news. Uh, And in particular, when you get people popping up and saying, it's just not fair, X, Y or Z, we could be getting tens, if not hundreds of billions of pounds additional from these companies. And I think the the short summary of what you've just heard is, no, you can't. And while some of them may be, in Dan and Helen's words, still being naughty, and we can rein some of that naughtiness in, with the best will in the world, the pot at the end of the rainbow is not in the tens of, let alone hundreds of billions. Let us end there. Thank you so much for sticking with us and listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. Please do rate and share this episode and for all our latest work please visit www.ifs.org.uk and to further support our work please consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for as little as £5 a month. You can find a link with further information on the episode description. Stay well.